0: If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, the Gospel of Mark as we continue in our series, and as we turn to God's Word, let's turn once again to Him in prayer, asking for His blessing. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed, we stand in Christ, in the power of Christ we stand. And yet, Father, we have an ongoing need, even this day, to be changed more and more into his image. And so, Father, we need two things now. We need revelation from the outside, and we need transformation on the inside. So would you be pleased, Father, to open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word. And would you be pleased to send your Holy Spirit to give us, Not just understanding, but a growing desire to put your word into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we started off last week, it's worth reminding ourselves that there is a danger in listening to a sermon from the Gospels. The danger is familiarity. Today's text, for many of you, may be Familiar. But I think it would be wise for us to ask, if the life and ministry of Jesus is so familiar, then why do so many people, why do do we still hold sometimes sincere beliefs about Jesus that cannot be supported by Scripture? Could it be that the familiarity has somehow inoculated us from the substance by leaving us on the surface of the message? In a day of growing numbers of sources of information, the Bible remains our one true source of information about Jesus. And so today, we're going to continue to get our understanding about Jesus, not from hearsay, not from rumor, but from the scriptures. Last week, we saw and participated in the narrative of the leper Going to Jesus. This week, it's the narrative of the paralytic being brought to Jesus. Although these are two familiar stories, both should be seen for what they really are, absolutely shocking narratives. Here we are at week number six in Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And Mark, as you recall, it's 16 chapters can be divided in half. The person of Christ followed by the work of Christ with, right in the middle, in chapter 8, the confession. It's not a confession of sin. It's a confession of who Jesus is as he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he asks, again, who do you say that I am? And Peter, representing all the disciples, says, you are the Christ. And from there, it's all downhill, as it were, to a hill outside of Jerusalem where the work of Jesus would be complete. And as we proceed through Mark, I think it's always a good reminder to remind ourselves that Mark is the shortest catechism. We don't have to think about 107 questions and answers for the shorter catechism, but here's the shortest catechism. And if we're ever lost, and I guarantee sometimes we will be lost in Mark, because Mark is fast-paced. He doesn't let you catch your breath every time, we might be lost. And so come back to this. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to Jesus? Well, I want to start off now by reminding us that yesterday was Reformation Day, the anniversary of the beginning in 1517 of what would come to be later known as the Protestant Reformation And so with that in mind, let's begin with some church history. Children, are you ready for an exam? A a test? Okay. Complete this statement. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is. Let's fill in the blank. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is. Now, is it justification by faith alone? A, A massively important doctrine that comes to be rediscovered during the time of the Protestant Reformation? Was it the doctrine of Scripture being the very Word of God? Was it the doctrine of the church? Was it a re-understanding of the Lord's Supper? What is it that was the greatest of all Protestant heresies? Well, the The theological advisor to the pope at the time of the counter-reformation, because the Roman church didn't let the Protestant Reformation go by uh, without any kind of response. There was a counter-reformation. And Cardinal Roberto Bellarmino, uh, of which Bellarmine University in Louisville is named, he said this, The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Assurance? The doctrine of assurance as the greatest of all Protestant heresies. Yet as we saw in our study of 1 John, the letter John writes was written to proclaim and promote the doctrine of assurance. He writes in 1 John 5 that it was written that you may know that you have eternal life. Written so that you may have assurance, so that you may know Eternal life, salvation. And at the heart of salvation, the leading edge of salvation is the forgiveness of sin. And that's what we have going on in our text today. Jesus is speaking and he's acting, as we will see in our text, that you may know, that you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. To forgive sins. In other words, Jesus wants his listeners then, as well as his listeners now, to know that he and he alone has the authority and the ability to forgive and thus provide an assurance of pardon. In our text last uh, this week as was the case last week, we have before us a divine human encounter. And in our counter we will see the priority of Jesus to forgive sin rather than to heal disease. We'll see the person of Jesus who by his actions is claiming to be God. And we'll also see the power of Jesus not only to heal, but also to forgive. And we will see these as we consider the misery of man, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the response of the people. Join with me now as I read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "My son, your sins are forgiven." Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, "Why does this man speak like this?" That He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, let's first take a look at the misery of the man. Imagine the scene at the house. This is where it's important as you hear this narrative description to imagine in your mind's eye the scene because Mark is recording details that he wants us to know. Jesus is back in Capernaum doing what we expect him to be doing. He's preaching. The end of chapter 1 had Jesus out in desolate places and some time has passed And we're to see that there's a break between the events of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And Jesus is now back in Capernaum, which will be his home for ministry. And he's most likely at the same home where he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. It's probably Peter's home, but it's Jesus' home. And he's preaching. After all, that's what he said he came to do. We read in verse 38 of chapter 1. He is preaching the word. It's important, Mark says, he is doing what? He is uh, preaching the word to them. That's Jesus' priority. That's why he's here. He's preaching the word, the gospel, the nearness of the kingdom and the necessity of repentance and faith as we saw in that initial sermon, the declaration and demand of the gospel in chapter one, verses 14 through 15. Jesus is preaching and people are gathering around him and listening. Lots and lots of people. You can imagine the scene. But we also read about a man who's identified like this in verse 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic. We don't have his name, his age. We don't have his marital status. We don't know anything about this man other than he's having to be carried Because he can't move, he can't walk, he's paralyzed. That's his condition. We're told of nothing else but he's a paralytic. He's not going to have the joy of running. He's not going to have the joy of walking. He can only lay on this mat, this bed, and be carried wherever he needs to go. That's all we know about the man. And indeed, as we saw last week, Mark is painting pictures for us to understand things. And here we see the picture of the spiritual condition of mankind. I describe this as the misery of of a man. And our confession of faith, our shorter catechism, talks about uh, what happened in the fall of man into sin. I love the hymn we just sang, Come ye sinners, bruised and broken by the fall. That's what fallen man is. He is bruised and broken. And this man is showing us that the spiritual condition is not just bruised and broken, but paralyzed, unable, because our confession says that the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. It's interesting, bringing those two together, sin and misery. Now, did this man sin and cause his physical illness? Well, no, because Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 9 and also in Job. You can't make the direct correlation. But sin and misery are related, and this man is miserable. He is helpless, just like the leper. Just like the leper, he is helpless. But, just like the leper, he is not hopeless. This man, this paralyzed man, this man that's unable to walk, has four men carrying him. And in other passages, they're described as four friends. And they hear of Jesus. And they've known Jesus has healed and they're bringing their friend to Jesus. And if you look at the details, um, in, chap- in verse 4, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, at that time and day, the, the, the one-story house had a flat roof and it had an outside staircase and it functioned like a patio or a porch. It was a, a place um, that, that things happened up on the roof, uh, to quote an old R&B song, Up on the Roof. Well, these men take this paralyzed friend to the roof because that's the way into Jesus. And Mark has the details again of of, uh, making, uh, of removing the roof and making an opening. They are so eager to get their friend into the presence of Jesus that they they don't let a well-made roof stop them. They dig and dig and remove this clay and that mud and this stone and this stick and they make an opening and they lower The man into the presence of Jesus. Stop and ask yourself, do do you have friends like that? Are you that kind of friend for other people? These four men and this paralytic are, are desperate to get him into the presence of Jesus. Have, have you all ever been desperate to get into the presence of Jesus? Have you ever had friends come alongside you to help you through their own prayer, through their own fellowship, get you into the presence of Jesus? Have you been that friend? He's still miserable. He's helpless, but he's not hopeless because he has been brought into the presence of Jesus. The misery of the man is not the only act in this drama. No misery does not meet company here. Misery meets the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice as we walk through this that Jesus does all the talking. He makes a statement, he asks a couple of questions, and then he gives a command, he gives an order. We see first grace seen through a declaration. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their faith. And what does their faith look like? It looks like all of our faith. It's our conviction. It's their conviction that only Jesus can help. Do you have that kind of faith right now in whatever it is you're going through? Do you have the faith that says only Jesus can help? Only Jesus, and Jesus only is their hope. That's what we see these men, and when Jesus says he sees their faith, he's talking about all five, the men carrying the man and the man himself, because the man is not objecting. You think I should go to Jesus? Yes, I'm going to Jesus, because he is my only hope. How does Jesus see their faith? Well, Mark's already told us who Jesus is right at the beginning. He's the Christ, the Son of God. He he sees their hearts. And isn't that good news, brothers and sisters, that God sees our hearts? It's terrifying at times, but it's also good news. Sometimes we can't articulate the prayer. The Holy Spirit and Jesus are interceding for us, and Jesus sees faith. And, of course, faith is a gift, so it's not something they came up with. He sees repentant hearts, and yet he ignores the man's obvious physical need, and instead, what does he do? He pronounces forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. Well, what is sin? And I think our confession captures it real well. It's any want of conformity to or transgression of the word of God. God the law of God what is it it's it's not conforming to God's law it's also transgressing God's law what is it that's what it is and Jesus says that the commands of God can be summed up with this what love God with all of your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself So sin is fundamentally going against love. And Augustine, the uh, early church theologian, spoke of sin as disordered love. Disordered love. Now we don't know a lot about this man. We don't know what his longings and what he loves are. But right now he is longing to be in the presence of Jesus. And he is in love with the idea of possibly being healed by Jesus the focus of his love the focus of his affection is on this man Jesus something is more important and basic and necessary than physical health namely being right with God children you go you, you go with your parents to the emergency room because your grandfather is having a heart attack, and he's also breaking, has broken his finger. What do you hope the doctors treat first, the broken finger or the heart attack? Help me out. Heart attack, I heard it. Why? Because it's more important. Is alleviating physical suffering important? Absolutely. It's just not primary. Jesus is going for the heart of the matter. The physical is not insignificant, it's just not primary. Because really the only disease that can really kill you is sin. And the only medicine that can really cure you is forgiveness. We see grace not only through a declaration, but through a question. Notice Jesus knows the heart. He saw the faith of the five men, and he also saw the questioning of the scribes. He asked that first question, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now the scribes, who are the scribes? They are men schooled in the written law of God and its oral interpretation. And they see what's going on with what Jesus has just said. They correctly note that Jesus is saying much more than what the prophets have said, much more than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel And uh, Moses, Jesus is making a claim that the prophets would not make. Because he's saying, in effect, now as I speak and because I speak, your sins at this very moment are forgiven. Again, look at their reaction. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Scribes absolutely ace their theology exam. Their theology is absolutely right on target. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Check. While their theology is lined up, their logic is not. Their logic is, is not. They should be Take it into account that if Jesus is making the claim that he's making and if he's doing what he's doing, then Jesus is God. And how is Jesus claiming that he's God? He is sin because he is claiming that he's forgiving sin because sin is against him. And you know the deal. We can't come and show up at a fight between brother and sister and mom and dad say, you know, to the, to the sibling that's got the, the, uh, the black eye, um, hey, I forgive you. No, no, that forgiveness is between offended parties. Here, the offended party is God. He's also discerning hearts, as we've already seen, and he calls himself the son of man, going back to Daniel chapter 7 and the promised uh, Messiah that would come. And Jesus asked another question Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or Rise, take up your bed, and walk? It's a counter question to their own questioning. The first, Your sins are forgiven, is easy to say, but it's hard to do. It's unverifiable. The results are not going to be available, they're invisible. And yet the second question is hard to say and hard to do, but it is verifiable. And the results are visible. Jesus is saying, hey, if I can raise him, then I most certainly can forgive him. I will show you, in other words, on the outside what I've already done on the inside. And finally, we see grace not just through a declaration and through a question, but also through a command. Jesus does it in, he goes on in in verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Have you ever thought about the grace of God coming in the form of a command? Here this man has to hear the words, get up. But we'll see in a moment he's also been given the ability to get up now. Jesus is the only one speaking. Now the scribes are thinking things in their hearts, but Jesus is in total command of the situation from start to finish. Jesus and Jesus alone is the unseen commander. We've seen through Jesus a spoken word of forgiveness, a visible word of healing. And united in Jesus are word and deed. And every Bible is a picture Bible, and here what we see before our very eyes is transformation from death-like helplessness to an active life, as the man does indeed obey Jesus' command and call to get up, to take up his bed, and go home. Well, last week it was just Jesus and the leper. No crowd, no disciples. However, this week, there's a crowd around Jesus and the paralytic. And the crowd will have something to say about what they are witnessing. So let's look finally at the response of the people. At the end of verse 12, The man has went out before them all, and they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. But before we get to the crowd, let's not overlook, first, the response of the man. He obeyed the command of Jesus because he now had the ability to rise, pick up his bed, and go home. Did you all see that? Jesus healed him, and Jesus called him. What, what he was unable to do, he's now able to do. And that's the story of our lives. The Bible is very clear. Um, Sin uh, traps us. We are in a trap. We are unable to escape. We do not desire the things of God. We are held in bondage until the light of the gospel breaks through. As Charles Wesley talked about, the dungeon flamed with light and his chains fell off and he rose, went forth, and followed thee. The once paralyzed man has now the ability to get up and get going, and that's true for every Christian. Before you had faith in Christ, you were dead, paralyzed, unable to move, and yet Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, makes you alive. But let's look at the response of the crowd. We never saw anything like this. I mean, quite honestly, this morning I was catching up on the national news and i never seen an eight-lateral play on a football game that beat my alma mater. I'd never seen anything like that. And I hope I never see that again. (laughs) Here, they say we've never seen anything like that. Well, wait a minute. Jesus has been going around healing. People have seen him heal, disease. What do they mean? They've never seen a man claiming to forgive sins. A man who, in other words, is claiming to be God. They are stunned. They were all amazed and they all glorified God. These folks were well on their way to memorizing and acting out what is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. They are glorifying God because of what they have seen. Brothers and sisters, have you ever seen anything like this? I think you should if you look in the mirror. If you look in the mirror and see that you are a sinner and yet you have confessed your sin before the Lord and He has forgiven you, You've never seen anything like that. Amazing love, how can it be? As the hymn says. Well, let's wrap up by, by seeing that our text presents us with three ultimates. The ultimate problem, the ultimate solution, and the ultimate cost. Well, what's the ultimate problem being presented here? Sin. Sin. Our biggest problem is not our weight, our height, our job, our bank account, our relationships with family, our extended family. Our biggest problem is sin. And because it's our ultimate problem, God has been pleased to provide the ultimate solution. The grace of forgiveness of which Mark will continue to unfold before our very eyes. There's a problem and there's a solution and there's a cost. Well, where do we see that? Where do we see the cost? Where do we see the price of forgiveness? Is Jesus just some medicine man, miracle worker, waving his magic wand saying, "Um, I forgive you, your sins are forgiven? No, brothers and sisters, there is a cost and we see it in the context of Mark and indeed the rest of the scriptures. Let's revisit for just a moment the question, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now with Jesus, whenever Jesus asks a question, there's usually more to the question than we usually initially think of. Let me ask you this, which is actually harder, healing someone? I mean, we see God work through medicine today, right? What's harder, healing someone or forgiveness? That is, bearing the wrath of God on a cross. Which is actually harder, healing Or forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness. When this man rises, it's pointing us to another rising. The rising of Jesus Christ on on the third day after he went to his death, bearing the wrath of God. And as he lay, as it were, paralyzed in the grave... For you and for me. Until he and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit rose him up, raised him up from the grave. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants us to know his forgiveness. He wants us to have the assurance of pardon. Jesus wants us to really know that the forgiveness of sins, whatever it is, and the more I get to know you... uh, the more I get to know myself, there's got to be a depth of mercy because there is a depth of sin in my life and in your life. Jesus wants us to know that the forgiveness of sins is possible, but only through him. So we know what the, the, uh, the paralyzed man wanted from Jesus, don't we? But we also know what he needed from Jesus. So ask yourself right now, what do you want from Jesus? What do you want from him? What do you really need from Jesus? Well, in coming to Jesus or being brought to Jesus, the man discovered something absolutely wonderful and life-changing. Brothers and sisters, he found he found that his hope, his only hope, was in Christ alone. And this man, as he lay there in front of Jesus, and as Jesus saw his faith, and as Jesus pronounced forgiveness, and then later called him and commanded him to get up, he found out that all he had is Christ. And brothers and sisters, when all you have is Christ, that is all you need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of salvation. We thank you that we see in this passage ourselves as unable to move until we are somehow brought to Jesus And in His grace and mercy, He pours His favor on us. O Lord, may we be a congregation of people that desire more than anything to remove all obstacles and get into the presence of Jesus. For it is there in Jesus Christ alone that our hope is found. It is there where we can recognize in all sincerity and all joy that when all we have is Christ, all we have is enough. For we pray in His name. Amen. Well, the, uh, there's a change to our hymn of response, and it's actually hymn number four in hymns modern and ancient, All I Have is Christ. Hymn number four in hymns modern and ancient.